Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for downloading another edition of Spin, the Rally Pod, and for joining the voice of Rally Colin Clark, former team boss George Donaldson, Dirtfish.com senior staff writer David Evans, and me, Rally fan and radio broadcaster Lisa O'Sullivan. Now, the 2nd of May is a date that's etched in the memory of many rally fans as a dark day when the sport changed forever. In 1986, while leading the Tour de Course rally, Finnish driver Henry Toivonen and American co-driver Sergio Cresto were killed in an accident that resulted in their Lancia Delta S4 exploding after plunging down a ravine. There were no close witnesses to the event, but within hours, the era of Group B rally cars was at an end. Now, David, I know the name Henry Toivonen and I have seen pictures of the Group B cars in action, but I wasn't really a rally fan at the time. So even though I know him, I don't really know much about him. Can you kind of fill in some of those huge gaps for me? Well, yeah, of course, Lise. You know, I was a, a huge rally fan uh, at that time. And, and you know, as much as I remember exactly where I was the day that Ayrton Senna died, I remember exactly where I was when, when Henry Toivonen died. Uh, and I, I was actually on my way to the to the Welsh rally where his brother Harry Toivonen was competing. My father was already up there uh, on the event and I'd managed to talk my mother into into taking me uh, all the way up there as well. And we were, we were on our way. It must have been a holiday because I think it was a Friday. Thursday May bank Friday holiday, we I suppose. Going. Bank holiday weekend. Exactly, yeah. Um, and But... I remember we were traveling up and we would have probably had at that time Radio 1 on um, because I would have wanted Radio 1. Mother would have probably wanted Radio 4, but Radio 1. And it made the national news. It made Radio 1 news. You know, it was it was massive. It was huge. And it was incredible, this sort of cloud that descended. You know, I was a 12 or 13-year-old spectator uh, on that event and in Wales. Hanu Mikola won. Um, and we'll get round later to to Harry Toivonen's departure from that event. Um, but yeah, it was it was a very very big deal. Not least because Toivonen was this absolute rising star um, of of the sport, but also for the implications, as you rightly say, you know, for the sport at large. It was the end of Group B. The day after the accident, uh, FISA president Jean Marie Balestra announced that Group B would end uh, at the end of the eighty six season, um, and there were some immediate uh, implications they the cars then immediately had to carry more fire extinguishers the rallies themselves changed you know gone were these four or five day and night marathons um, much shorter routes uh, so yeah it was it was a hugely big deal but Henry himself came from a, a rallying family you know Paulie Toivonen was his father a former European champion in 1968 and of course you know what Paulie Toivonen is probably unfortunately most famous for is winning the 1966 Monty 
which is where all of the, the Mini Coopers, uh, Timo Mackin and Rano Alton and, and, and Paddy Hopkirk, and of course Roger Clark's Lotus Cortina were all excluded on sort of trumped up charges to get to get a Citroen um, winning the Rally Monte Carlo. And that, that Citroen was driven by Pauli Toivonen. Um, and, you know, one of the great things with Henry's victory on the the 86 Monte was the fact that it brought redemption for the Toivonen family two decades down the road in, in Monte Carlo. Um, but yeah, you know, as I said, there was, his father competed, his brother competed, Harry, uh, and they, it wasn't just rallying, you know, Harry and Henry both drove Group C endurance cars. Um, and, you know, Henry Henry even drove a Formula One car. He, he raced in British Formula Three for a while, you know, was tipped, heavily tipped as a real superstar by Eddie Jordan. Um, whose team he tested with and drove, I think drove for, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, huge star. So I started competing in 75. Um, lots of Finnish championship rounds came to Britain in, I think, 78 um, to drive yep. uh, an RS 1800. Uh, and for me, you know, the star just built until 1980, met Dozo uh on the 79 RAC when he finished ninth in a, in a Talbot Sunbeam. Uh, as I say, caught the eye of Desodel, the great Peugeot Talbot um, team principal. And somebody, Des was, uh, you know, I, obviously I didn't know him personally, but I, I've le- read an awful lot of stuff and David Lapworth worked very closely with him. And for me, he was somebody who who could spot a star um, and he picked out Henry um, and supported him. And of course, the following year in 1980, he won the RAC rally, became the youngest ever winner of a WRC round um, and then went into quite a difficult and dark period uh, of, of three or four or five years where Group B was developing and four-wheel drive cars were coming online and Henry just didn't get a chance. Um, you know, he was with Ford, he was with Talbot, he was then with Lancia, with, with Porsche, with David Richards' Porsche team. Um, and it wasn't until 85, so fully five years down the road, before he finally got uh, a chance in a four-wheel drive car. Uh, now, we had a bit of a green room chat uh, before we came on air here, and I know that George, I, I don't want to preempt what you're going to say here, George, but, you know, for me, Henry Toivonen was an absolute god. You know, somebody that I would have given anything to interview, anything to meet, um, but I I know he had his faults. Uh, I know there's a, we perhaps come to a certain incident with Miss Finland, um, but uh, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, is it fair to say, George, he wasn't your cup of tea? Well, no, far, far, far from it. It just—I mean, I—I I, I was a massive fan, and, and obviously, I was rallying myself in the in the late eighties and early nineties. So we were spoiled in Britain because we had so many events where we had, you know, half of the world championship stars attending British championship events. On a regular British championship event, you would have. Malcolm Wilson, okay, great. You know, a, a rising British star that was taken on Hannah Mikola, Ari Vatanen, Stig Blomqvist, Bjorn Waldegard, and Marco Allen in a checkered flag Stratos. You know, it was just an amazing series of events. And in amongst all that mix in the late 80s and early 90s was, was Henry Toivonen. And you know what? He was very, very average. Of course, he was just learning. And that's it's unfair of me to say very average. He was a, he was a journeyman driver. And, and he took many, many years to build up his skill level. He got that great success at, at right in 1980, which was very, very well deserved. I mean, it has to be said, the guy just came good. And he drove yeah. splendidly on that 1980 REC. Uh, but then, he, as, as you say, he hit that dark period where maybe he wasn't getting the best advice. 
uh, just making, I mean, wrong decisions. Just the decisions he made didn't put him in the right place at the right time. Um, and and he, he was very nearly out of a drive, I think, on two or three occasions. And I'm just gleaning this from reading the magazines, you know, crashing on a, an Acropolis rally. Nobody crashed on an Acropolis rally in the early 80s because it was just all about survival. And he crashed off the road in Alancia. There's a great photograph in the Grand Prix magazine, which did a lovely series on the WRC at that time of him sitting in the in the crashed car with his head resting on the steering wheel. I might still have that magazine, actually. I tend to have an attic full of them, which I, I fight for occasionally with my wife who wants to throw them all out. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, but but the, the bottom line is, um, he, he, he was a bit of an average driver. He never struck me as being brilliant. In an era, of course, when you had Ari Vatanen, Hannah Mikola, Bjorn Waldegard, Marku Alain, and the rest, you know, the Tony Pons, the Malcolm Wilsons, um, or Tony, obviously, uh, Tony and Malcolm both coming quite near the front of the of the of the pack in in the in the mid eighties, as Group B peaked with the um, the six R four. So, yeah, he was only I, just an average driver, and then he came all of a sudden good. And the guy was magic, you know. When he got into that um, the Delta S four, he was he was that was his car. I he, I would definitely say I question some of that. You know, we look at when he went to Opel in in. Uh, he did another year, didn't he, with with Desert LS after eighty, so eighty one. So he went to Opel in eighty two. Yeah. Um, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four. He did three years a- with eighty two yeah. Scottish Rally. Eighty two Scottish Rally. I think he was Jimmy McRae's teammate on that one in an Opel, wasn't he? Well, that's exactly my point, Cole. Is that he was in such a difficult position because he did some WRC rounds where he was set. He was second in line to Walter Roll, and then he came to Britain and he was he was the second string to Jimmy McRae. Um, and it, you know, it was difficult because the the Sunbeam was never the best car, was it? It was a nicely, beautifully balanced car, but it was, you know, ultimately it, it wasn't a match. Is that fair to say, George, for a, something like a an RS eighteen hundred or a one three one Abarth? It, 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 it. I don't know. I, mean, I think ultimately it seemed to it seemed to go very well at times. There was maybe shortcomings in some of the way it was set up. But I mean, it was it was basically just an escort with a, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, it was an Atlas axle in the back type thing, with, um, I think it was at coil sprung or leaf sprung. I think it was coil sprung at the back. Absolutely mm. no issues with that. McPherson struts on the front. A nice big engine, nice big powerful engine. Maybe the engine was a little bit heavier in the front. Maybe the balance wasn't quite as good as an escort. I'm not sure. Mm. But I mean, well, looked at to, to. I mean, I remember one event that stands out in my memory is the Manx in '83. <clears throat> Um, where you know he took on the the full might of everybody uh, and, and beat the lot, beat mm. everybody. You know, beat Vatanen in the same car, uh, and people like Russell Brooks, you know, who were proper drivers around yeah. those around those mm-hmm. lanes at that time. The move, you know, the 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 big thing. One thing that I've done a bit of research recently, and I'd completely forgotten, is that at the end of would be the end of eighty three, he was desperate to find a four wheel drive car. Uh, and he was offered a, a deal with Peugeot. Jean Todd offered him the because obviously they been I just, teammates. Can I just jump in? This is my 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 poor rally knowledge history. Had the were we fully into the Group B era at this point, yeah, or just B, building into it? Or Group B started in in eighty three. Eighty three. Uh, so he had a year in a, in what was a Group B Manta four hundred, uh, and then at the end of that year, Todd offered him a, a drive with with Peugeot because they'd been teammates when Frecklan and and. Uh, and Henry were in the same Talbot, Peugeot Talbot team. Um, he thought about the Peugeot offer and said no, 
because he he questioned how quickly the, the 205 would come online and instead he went with a half a deal with Lancia and half a deal with with David Richards Porsche because obviously Porsche were running the 911 SCRS at that time but the big carrot for Toivonen was the 959 which was this sensational four-wheel drive Porsche that what was then David Richards Autosport based out of Silverstone was looking to um mm. to develop um so he, that's the way he went uh and had some some fairly strong results through that season I've got to say, you know, the the absolute memories from '84 though do do involve crashes. You know, you, you're absolutely mm. right, George. There were some fairly sizey shunts um, in there. You know, particularly in the Lancia yeah. in, in in Portugal and the one you mentioned in Acropolis. Yeah. Um, but the one that caught my eye was the one I was talking to Yerry Matty Latvala about this one not so long ago. Was when he was doing the Circuit of Ireland, uh, and I'm sure he was leading with Ian Grindrod alongside, leading by quite a long way in one of those Rothmans Porsches. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, um, they had a, they finished the event at end of leg, whatever, put the car in park for me. And there was a celebrity kart race uh, that he jumped at a chance to j- jump oh, in a cart. I remember uh, this. Yeah, and had a, <laughs> an enormous crash uh, and was ambulanced away to hospital uh, with a serious sprained I think ankle and a, and a back injury, um, but came back the next day, back in the car um, and drove. Ultimately, the gearbox broke on the car. Uh, I think it jammed in fourth or something. But then uh, Costa Smeralda, which was I got not long afterwards, uh, he went and won Costa Smeralda in that nine eleven, and, mm. and just you know. Yeah, and and I, I I can't add an awful lot to this discussion. I'm just enjoying David uh, he, and, and George hearing your memories because I, I really wasn't involved at all in rallying. wasn't really even a fan in those days. But but I picked up something about that rally, the '84 Costa Smeralda rally, that as you rightly say, Toivonen won in the Porsche. Uh, and would you believe it was actually 36 years ago, almost to the day, and it was Pro Drive's first victory in Europe, only their second victory ever in rallying, the first victory in Europe. It was the 84 Costa Smeralda with Toivonen. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a momentous, momentous rally. I, it was, a, a, absolutely. And ultimately, the 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 time with DR was, was soured slightly um, at the end of 84 because DR thought he had a, or was confident enough to go legal with it, that he had a contract with Toivonen. Rothmans had a, a contract with, with Henry into 1985. Uh, and Henry had effectively said, "No, I'm going with Lancia." Um, and as this as this case proceeded into court, um, uh, Henry was found at the at the unveiling of the Delta S4, in you know, in full view of the whole public uh, and and all of the world's press, and made it quite clear that you know his time with 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 Porsche and with DR was done, and he was he was with Lancia now with the Delta S4. Unveiled in, I think, December 84, but then massively delayed. Um, should have been out in the spring of That's 85, funny, yeah. middle of 85, and ultimately came uh, at the end of 85 for the RAC. This is kind of hinting that there's a, a, a discord, and you did mention it uh, earlier, David, that Henry Toivonen and the man may have been very different from Henry Toivonen and the driver. He was, you know, 84... <laughs> He was he was a Finn, ultimately living in Monaco, with a contract with Porsche and a contract with Lancia. You know, a very good-looking guy, and he kind of lived that life. I think you know. Obviously, I never met him, but talking to people who knew him very well, he could be a very difficult fella. 
Uh, he could be difficult with his co-drivers, uh, and he certainly went through quite a few co-drivers. Um, and you know, he 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 was a married man, a father, but he he's as we said earlier, he had a a brief flirtation with Miss Finland, um, which resulted in in more than a few nights away from the family home. But they, I think they all got it back together. But he was, I would in I don't know, was he a playboy? Perhaps I don't know about that. But he was certainly living his life to the full. Um, but at the same time, he was a driver that had, for me, extreme talent. Um, and, you know, at all, I interviewed Eddie Jordan years and years ago about him. Um, and, and Jordan said that he watched, I think he gave Senna an early test in Formula 3. And he said you could see the same balance and feel for a car to find the grip, to find the limit. Uh, and he was absolutely sure that Toivonen was a star of the future. Um, and you look at, listen to someone like Juho Pyrenen. Um, yeah, I think I can't remember which San Remo it was, but they were in the 037 and they'd lost hours and hours and hours on the gravel. And they came to the tarmac and, and Pyro said, you know, to f- sit alongside him, it was magic. He couldn't explain it, but it was just pure magic, the way that he could feel where the grip was mm. and just and just take the car to the limit. And, li- you know, anybody can take the car to the limit, but he could hold it on the limit for a long time. That said... He did have some massive accidents, um, and just you before. Always do it, then, David. Just going. Sorry, just going back to the, the, the Eddie Jordan uh, piece that you mentioned there. Something I read uh, just quite recently that Jordan said after Toivonen's death. Uh, he talked about the single seater ability that Toivonen had, and do you know what? Until we mentioned we were doing this program. Uh, and I started doing a little bit of reading about Toivonen. I had no idea about his, his abilities and his prowess and his achievements in single-seaters. And what Jordan said just after Toivonen's death, he said, look, he said, I don't know whether Toivonen could have been a Formula One world champion because you need a lot of luck to be a Formula One world champion. And clearly Henry didn't have a lot of luck. But what he did say, he said, I am absolutely in no doubt that Toivonen would have won Grand Prix had he been given the chance. He would have been a Grand Prix winner. So he, he was, as you say, just you know, to, to have the ability to be able to, to combine those two disciplines. And rallying and Grand Prix racing are very different. You need to have very different natural talents, don't you? Uh, you know, it was a unique set of talents that he had. It, I wouldn't say it was unique. You know, I think there's a, there's a few people out there. But, and, you know, what I don't want, George, is I don't want me to come across as a sort of fanboy here you know i i'm oh, abs- you kind of have, <laughs> <laughs> I have I? Yeah, but you know i mean you look at you look at the the some of the shunts in in 85 you know costas Moralda, he had a massive accident where he just didn't recognize that piro had called a corner you know he went through what looked like a kink he thought that was the corner it wasn't uh, and arrived at a corner 60 miles an hour too fast um and then you know his last time in a 037 in in catalonia crashed the car so hard that it, it broke the roll cage. And as he was reaching for the starter button, Pirro pointed out that actually the pedals had been hit so hard they were now on, on Pirro's side of the car, not on, on Henry's side of the car. So it wasn't going to go very far. So he, he, was, he was spectacularly quick and occasionally had spectacular accidents. When he came to that, but, you know, for me, this the, the thing that totally cements the guy's ability is that he he got into that car in the Delta S4. He'd done 40 kilometers. What's that? I mean, 25 miles of testing? Yeah, nothing at all. GB. Yeah, nothing. GB I mean, nothing. 1995, wasn't it? 1985. 
Exactly. But he'd yeah. always maintained that his driving style, a, a huge amount of left foot braking to balance the car and keep the car gently in a bit of a, an oversteer position, he always felt it would work with four-wheel drive. And it did. You know, from the word go, you know, he, he won the RAC, he won Monty, he was leading Swedish, he led Portugal, he won Costa Smeralda, and then we got to Corsica. Before we get, I was going to say, before we get to, to Corsica, can I just ask you about these these Group B cars, the, the, the Delta S4? Again, as I say, I've only seen them in documentaries. I haven't heard them and I, I can only imagine what it must have been like anywhere near these, well, they were, they were kind of flying petrol tanks really, weren't they? <laughs> Sorry, excuse me, I was just having a cup of tea. Ba- ba- barely even that, Lisa, to be honest. George that, is much better being polite. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were the super, they were supercars to a level well, that we will not see Lisa, on a road again. Lisa, they were fire-breathing dragons. But you know what's really interesting is two, two and a half years after the introduction of Group A, which was basically, when it was introduced, it was basically like a Group N car. Um, those cars were beating the Group B times on stages uh-huh. like shattering it was, them. I mean group B development in suspension and tires it was just brute power group B brutality brutality they were they were just tractors they were just tractors yeah. and this was it you so, know you David, could, sorry Cole sorry so no 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 so, so my, my question my question uh relates to this and to what Lisa was saying there you know, you, you talked about Teufel and saying he was he was born his style was was if you like developed to Make the most out of out of the uh, four wheel drive cars, but but do you think it was four wheel drive cars in particular, or do you think it was that Lancia? Because that Lancia was a brutally fast car, as you're saying, George, but a very difficult car to drive. It needed a, a combination of of style, of talent, of bravery. That I mean, would you think it was that car? Do you think if he got into any of the maybe the Audi, would he have been as good, or do you think he could just master that particular car? Well, you know, Walter Roll famously said that, in his opinion, there were only three or four drivers in the in that era that could genuinely drive those cars to the absolute limit of their performance. Toivonen was clearly one of those drivers. I think his point about the four-wheel drive thing, and again, George will know far more than, than me, you keep the car loose. And, you know, don't forget, these cars hadn't got a handbrake to get you out of trouble. Uh, you know, if you wanted to get through a hairpin, you needed to be brave. You needed to have the car mm. loose on the entry into the corner to, to slide through it. Um, and that was what his, his point was. And he was a driver that was comfortable with the car moving around a lot um, under him. You know, we can see that from his speed in rear-wheel drive cars. And as you said, Cole, you know, you needed to be brave. Ultimately, he was one of the bravest drivers in the history of the championship. Uh, there's, there's no doubt, but... Is that fair, George? I mean, what do you think about the way you'd have to drive those cars? Oh, absolutely. Basically, you had to keep the, 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 the wheels spinning the whole time to have any chance. So you were balancing. You know, the left foot technique was a, a balance between the wheels speeding up very quickly and slowing down more quickly than the car. And you were trying to balance the, the, with, with basically the weight shift of the car. You were transferring mm. weight from the back of the car to the front of the car to add to the dynamic. Uh, it was an amazing technique. I always remember the story about um, Stig Blomqvist trying to show Walter Roll, who couldn't basically unstick the cars, taking him out and demonstrating to him how to do it. And uh, you can guarantee that Stig regretted doing that because <laughs> because Walter went away for the whole winter. I spoke to one of the engineers who looked after the cars. Walter was given a quattro all winter. 
and he went away to his home up there in Austria or wherever it is in the Bavarian Alps in Germany and he just practised and practised and practised and apparently did about 40,000 kilometres. And and came back (laughs) stronger. And came back in one Monte Carlo. You know, fantastic. What a story. But, you know, Henry Henry was that guy. Henry was the guy also that, that, that could manage it. He, he instinctively had that, that innate control. He always had that innate natural ability. It was a question of honing his skill, honing his rallymanship, honing his ability to read an event. Okay, he could read a corner. He could read two corners. He could read a stage. But unfortunately, he was, uh, he was, he was taken away from us at a point at which he just had generated this encyclopedia you know 10 years of paid drives more or less nearly not quite probably eight years of paid drives in various teams generating a huge amount of experience and my god it gelled there in 85 and 86 sadly ending up what would appear to have not been a a speed related accident you know that's the story there's lots of but if we if we if we could just just dash back to to the one thing that has Mm. actually just come to me uh, and I really should write these things down, but I didn't write this down. But it has just come back to me talking about the Costa Smeralda accident in in '85 and how brave, Toyvan, you know, brave to get in the car when he's on crutches and all of that. But I remember a, a story that Harry told uh, not so long ago that uh, after Costa Smeralda, it was quite a violent accident. Um, Sixty mile an hour too quick into a corner would do that. Um, mm, and every time <laughs> he he had um i think he broke some vertebrae in his neck so they put on one of those you know those frames that kind of lock your head in one place so you simply can't move uh and then they sort of drill it into your bones so it's not going to move um quite a sinister looking thing so toivonen came home from hospital in one of those uh wearing one of those I was at home for a couple of days and his mum and dad had been out somewhere and they came home to find Henry playing tennis. <laughs> in his... <laughs> I mean, you know, it takes a certain mentality to, uh, to, to, to do that sort of thing. But just, I mean, the, to come back to, to 80, 85 and that, and the RAC, you know, an awful lot is made of uh, his, his win on that event. And it was an incredibly difficult and, and long, long, long event uh and and you know yeah. he would have lost minutes at a time i know the front diff broke twice he rolled in scotland um it was and then you know Alain was leading as well Alain finished second in in the sister car but Alain went off in in curse uh, i can't remember somewhere in kielda went off into a ditch and was yep. staying there and famously Juha Kankinen, who was driving for toyota then uh yep. saw that, his that was his, my second event for toyota was it then george then, tell us yeah. what so what did Juha do yeah, exactly what you said. He stopped. He stopped and pulled uh, pulled Marco Allen out of the ditch. <laughs> him and, and Fred and I can tell you, I was there when Uva Anderson gave them a roasting for it. <laughs> <laughs> Not a happy man. But but that was a style of event. You know, this thing went right up country, right back down, um, and you could lose those minutes, couldn't you, George? And still, yeah. clearly, oh, still yeah. come back. I mean, and win. what was it? It, it was still. Um, in 1985, that still would have been a 700-mile event, competitive, yeah. six, 700 miles, 1,000 yeah. kilometres of yeah. stages. It, and the rest, maybe even more than that, David. It, and it's insane. But, you know, I was really it was very much contorted on that event because much as I wanted Toivonen to win, the guy who was third was the man whose car I'd been drawing on my maths book for about mm. at least 18 months before, which was, of course, Tony Pond. Um, in the in the computer vision six r four and you know it's 
there's a real chance, you know, if Kankinen hadn't stopped to get um, Allen out of the ditch, Pondy would have been second. And if Toivonen had yeah. won, just one of these problems had gone on for a bit more, a, a bit longer, yeah. Tony would have won. Um, yeah. So, but moving on, you know, that was a great event. Monte Carlo was just an outstanding event for, for Toivonen. He he was quick from the word go. Um but I had this tremendous road accident with a, a Peugeot Spectator car in the middle of the road, head-on shunt, and serious um, hip injury for, for Henry. Again, off to hospital, given loads of medication. Uh, and because these the Delta S4 was a tubular space frame chassis, they essentially cut the front of the car off and welded a new front end on. Um, and on the left-hand side of the car, it was two centimetres shorter than on the right-hand oh side. So, and still... You know, the guy came through and won. And this is one of the things that, you know, I it's difficult that, to describe. There's to. the God status, David, isn't it? There's it, the it, God it, status. When he's do, when you're doing things yeah. like that repeatedly, yeah. like not once but twice or three times, the guy quite clearly had just come into that magic place. He was going to have a magic couple of years and, okay, it went west. But, you know, as, more, more than that, you know, when, when he had finished m- much of the Monty, um, and he was coming down into Monte Carlo for the last for the last night through Col de Turini and stuff. This is where I'm, I find it a bit difficult to to deride uh, Henry's character too much, as you know he he took everything so seriously because he got there. He wasn't completely happy with the notes that he got for for Turini and the final loop. So he went as everybody else got into Monte and went to their lovely hotels. Toivonen got into the helicopter and took a, a recce car back up into the mountains to go through the stages again. Much of the night spent doing that, or much of the, the rest of the day doing that, to just prepare himself, because at that time he was still behind Timo Salonen. Um, and then the rain came, and of course Salonen was never particularly happy on, on tarmac in the rain. Uh, and and Henry just, you know, absolutely slaughtered him, and, and won by, and actually caught Salonen on one stage. Uh, so won comfortably and deserved it. Uh, and as we say... Um, made up for what happened to the Toivonens 20 years ago. Um, but it, it, if if you don't mind me, just keep... There's one thing that I wanted to, to mention. Um, obviously, Swedish, he had an engine problem. Portugal was Portugal. And this, you know, was a pivotal part of the Group B story was that there was this huge accident with Joachim Santos in Portugal where he killed, I think, four spectators at the side of the road and injured 30 or something when he crashed in... Mm. Sintra, was it Sintra? Sintra, yeah, there's two Sintras. It was a Sintra just outside Cascais, That's in, right. uh, down, down in, um, in Lisbon. And yeah. there is, there so is that... footage of, the, of part of that accident, at least as well. Um, oh, yeah, and, particularly and, unpleasant. And all of it, but, but also yeah. watching as a modern fan, you're watching it in disbelief, uh, the fact that where people are standing and how many people are on yeah. the roadsides. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was, it was absolutely insane. Uh, completely insane but uh, so so the scene had been set you know that group b was and really the year before we'd lost Attilio Bettiger as well uh, mm-hmm. so things were were not going well for for group b um but uh the the cars were all pulled out withdrawn uh from from portugal then mm-hmm. henry went back to costa smeralda uh and won that event redemption from his enormous shunt the year before but before that event he had gone and done some testing in corsica with Alancia, and they'd put some new suspension on it pirelli had bought this wider tire and from the dry tarmac on monte they found they reckon a second and a half a kilometer in that car i mean that is a wow. massive gain isn't it 
Yes, at, at, at a time when tyre development just started to accelerate exponentially, all the fantastic um, uh, speed from those cars that we saw like, transferred into the Group A, a huge amount of that is tyre technology. So, yeah, a second and a half uh, leap in speed from a tyre um, a tire step, David, totally mm. believable. Totally believable yeah. at that time, yeah. And, and here's, I mean, so we now get to Corsica. Uh, and Can I just jump in there to say, by the way, when I was saying how with the footage, how, you know, the fans were standing wherever. I'm not blaming the fans at that point. Obviously, it's how the sport wasn't protecting fans was the point I was trying to make. Yeah. And that and, and in, in a way, Lise, this now brings in, you know, what was then FISA um, and Jean-Marie, Jean-Marie Balestra, who was the president of FISA. Um, and I find it quite astonishing and, and almost you know, it gives me goosebumps to think about this now. But on the eve of Corsica, um, the, the manufacturer teams went to Balestra, went to the event organisers and said, this rally is dangerous. This, these stages are too long. We need to shorten some stages. We need to take some stages out. It's too long. You know, it was it was uh, seven or 800 miles and 30 Whoa. stages. You know, Jeez, David, but, but just to back that up, here, here's, here's something that I've come across. It's a quote from Teuveren, and it's believed to be Teuveren's last known public quote. So it was just before the start of stage 18. Stage 18 was the fateful stage. Yeah. And, and this is what he said, and this absolutely backs up your point, David, that you're making. He said, today we have driven more than the whole distance of the Thousand Lakes Rally. Yeah. After four hours of driving, it's hard to keep up with the speed. Mm. So with a modern car like this, it's just impossible to race here. It's physically exhausting and the brain can't keep up with it anymore. But this, and this is the point, you know, and certainly as he went in to start that, that event in Corsica, we knew that he had a cold. He had, but was it a cold? Was it a flu? We don't know. You know, he certainly wasn't very well. Um, but it, it didn't impact on his ability over those previous 17 stages to build a two minute 45 second lead. You know, he was clearly on top of the car. Now, one of the, one of the things, one of the theories on this is that he ran something in the fuel, um, toluene, toluene, is it, is it George? It's really, yeah, really but, uh, super everybody, high octane. Everybody, uh, everybody writes basically liquid lead, highly carcinogenic. I've been covered in the stuff. Nobody told me about it. I have literally <laughs> been covered in toluene. So why, that, why are we laughing at that? No, no, thank you. No, I'm, I'm deeply hurt. I, I give that as a very serious comment. I've been covered yeah. in toluene. Good literally Lord. covered in it. I, I remember. I remember learning about that in my A level chemistry from behind protective clothing and a glass screen. So that and that's the point, Lise. You know that. Both Sergio Cresto and Toivonen were complaining about the smell of fuel in the car. Um, and so, you know, who knows? Was it was it the fact that he was a little bit poorly? You know, Malcolm Wilson had retired from the event with a, a gearbox failure or something. And he told me the story that they all stayed in this hotel in Ajaxio, the Campo de Loro, which um, I have to say is, is not it's not a particularly special hotel. But any time I'm in Corsica, I stay there for at least one <laughs> night. Because you just, you know, it's the most incredible hotel to know what kind of went on there and the fact that all of the teams stayed there in this in this real kind of heyday mm. of that sport. He'd been at breakfast, Malcolm, um, and he'd seen the Lancia doctor giving Henry the tablets for his flu and, and all of that. And Malcolm said, you know, he couldn't believe the amount of tablets that the guy was taking. Um, and then 
Nigel Harris, who was with Malcolm, um, was going out spectating with Elaine, Malcolm's wife, and, and Malcolm didn't fancy it, so off they went. And Malcolm said when they came back in, Nigel said, you know, Toivonen is just in a different world. He's just so much quicker than anybody. Um, and then we got to... David, that- there's, there's, yeah, just before we get on to the actual action, David, there's another quote that's attributed to Malcolm. Right. Uh, obviously, after the accident and after the event, which says... Uh, that Malcolm was aware or talked to Henry about potential problems that Henry was experiencing after that enormous crash in Costa Smeralda. Something yeah. to do with blackouts and how he had these, not regular, irregular blackouts where he would just black out. And, and apparently he had talked to Malcolm about that. Has Malcolm talked to you about that at all? A, a little bit, yeah. But, I mean, this is, again, it's part of the whole... It's not a conspiracy theory by any means because apparently no, it's I an investigation. I, yeah, I you didn't. Know, I didn't know this. I didn't know this, but apparently there is footage, video footage of the car going off the road somewhere. Now, obviously, it's been it's been bought by somebody, and it's perhaps quite rightly kept locked away. We don't need to see it, but it was inspected by Lancia apparently, uh, or somebody, um, and it was reported that there was absolutely no indication that the car made any attempt to break or make the corner. Uh, it went off, hit the top of the trees. So, you know, went off. We drove that bit, you know, we've all driven that bit of road, but we were there last year, Cole. Mm. It's a quick bit yeah, of road right. into that left-hander with nothing, no brick wall on the outside. Um, and it, it just didn't stop. So, you know, if if he'd misheard a pace note, you know, at some point he'd have seen the corner and there would have been some, you know, it has stood on the brakes, the car would have locked mm. up. There would have been something to indicate. So did he black out? Was it because of the fuel? Was it because of this cost of smell? We don't know. But what we do know is that Bruno Sabi, who was following him, who was running second in the Peugeot, was one minute behind him going into the stage. Sabi came down that straight, turned left, and caught sight of a fire at the bottom of the ravine. And the fire was within 60 seconds was burning with such intensity that Sabi turned around and knew something was wrong, came back and jumped out the car with the extinguisher. You know, we were, we've all seen it's so steep to get down there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was burning with such ferocity because of, don't forget, they'd, they'd just come out of service in Corte. So they'd, they'd brimmed the tanks full of this, this essentially Avgas um, and, and away they'd gone. So, you know, once it went, it absolutely went. Uh, yeah, and the, the, you know, the fuel tanks were just alloy fabrications. I mean, I think that most of the fuel tanks were the same and they would yeah. be done in-house. Um, the the ones in the Toyotas, I, I recall, had uh, the explosive stuff inside them, the foam inside them, but yeah. I don't quite know what what, uh, what that would do. I mean, obviously, if the tank ruptures, the fuel's going to come out just as quick with that stuff in or out. Yeah. Uh, and I think those drivers in the, in the S4s, I think they sat on the fuel tanks. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, you know, the the, the, the next bit, obviously, Biazion was, was third into the stage. He got there. Mm. Um, and Michel Lizan, the, the the most extraordinary journalist, right up there with our friend DKW, uh, David Williams, just a brilliant journalist, Belgian journalist. He tells the most incredible story because Michel had just arrived um, in Pontelecchia where the Lancia team was waiting for, for the car to come out of the stage. And in those days, they used to have the the radio would be live from the car, and they used to hang uh, speakers on the service barges so that it, right. the whole team could I hear what was going that, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, Michelle tells this just haunting story of of Nini Russo 
banging his fist on the on the service van, sh- shouting, "Tell me they're out of the car!" And and Tiziano Siviero, Biazion's co-driver, saying, "No, they're they're inside. It's burning." I mean, you know, it, <laughs> I just find it. You know, right now I can feel myself welling up at just the pure emotion of mm. that scene in a sport that we cherish and we absolutely love. And they, you know, the the mercy in all this, I guess, if there is any, is that they would have gone incredibly quickly. Um, and that, you know, that moment changed our sport forever. Surely did. It surely did. And and that is that is something that that we can look back at and. And see the massive changes. And you mentioned right at the start, David, that within hours, the Group B era had come to an end. And in much the same way that Ayrton Senna's tragic death changed the sport of Formula One and improved driver safety, this is the moment that rallying took safety a bit more seriously. It it, it exactly was. And actually, that's just reminded me the point I forgot. I made the point about the, you know, they'd taken this, this... these concerns to the organisers and to Balestra at the beginning of the event. And Balestra, you know, the utter b- he he produced a petition from the 58 amateur drivers in the in the same event to say, look, they've all signed to say, no, we're we're safe, we're happy to run. Uh, and of course, let's not forget at that time, Balestra was not only president of FISA, he was president of the French. ASN, the French governing body. He didn't want the course, tour, tour, tour de course to stop. He didn't want it changing. It was the best rally in the world for him. You know, the he man, wanted to get off the island alive. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, you know, I mean, some of the comments that people like you know Nini Russo have made about Balestra, you know, the guy, it was just scandalous at the time mm. that this was. Allowed. He was a scandalous individual. He was. He was. He was, uh, he was a. He was a Donald Trump character. Yeah. He was a, an absolute yeah. shocker, but. It did. It changed everything. You know how I think three o'clock. That the accident was the Friday, I think, and Saturday three o'clock in Ajaccio. Balestra sat there and said, "It's the end of any evolution of Group B for this year. Uh, shorter rallies, no skirts, aerodynamic aids are, are, are gone, um, more extinguishers, and from January the first, eighty-seven, there's no Group S, which was the the category developed after Group B, mm-hmm. um, and Group A." arrived you know and instead of having to make 200 cars for group b manufacturers are now required to produce 5,000 examples of a, of a car uh, and they were production based that was the crucial thing yeah um they were all it, steel steel monocoques again back to back to a standard car basically yeah group four almost wasn't it it, it was absolutely and it and yeah. it changed you know everything you look we got bag tanks for fuel tanks everything changed and it's and it's continued to change and uh, I can't remember George can you uh, an accident or anything before that that prompted such significant change in the sport no that would uh, that would be it for me I mean I suppose I'd I'd have to cast my mind back to the stories that my former boss Uwe Anderson used to tell me of course they used to rally without helmets yeah and without roll cages and and without roll cages and and Mm. uh, and then and even in some cases, without seat belts, you know, some <laughs> yeah. drivers didn't use seat belts. Phenomenally enough, I guess they were going a lot slower um, it's, in, in it's... sixty or seventy horsepower cars. But I mean, I remember Uva saying when when they got the, the the helmets on, it became quite difficult to hear the co-driver because you had the leather P helmet, as he called it, with the leather bits down the side, and then you couldn't hear your co-driver. So they they came up with homemade intercoms where they would strap a plastic pipe or a rubber pipe. It would have been back in the sixties. 
to the co-driver's mouth and it went into the through a Y piece and into the driver's ear. He said he said if if the co-driver scoffed or sneezed, oh, he said it blew God. your eardrums out. It was the, the stories that Uwe Anderson used to tell us were amazing. But yeah, so the, the sport had generally evolved up until that point. That was a, a major change. And then you know, in many ways, you could you can lay a lot of things at a lot of people's doors. But that was a smart call from Balestra. Stop it, mm. dead. This sport is on the knife edge. It, too it late. Was. Too it, late, but not too little. Happily. Yeah. Absolutely, and and mm. you know you mentioned there the the seatbelt thing, and famously Henry Toivonen never wore a seatbelt in a road car, you know, and that and that's perhaps a a demonstration and a mark of of his own self belief in his in his own ability. Um, it, he was an incredible character, an incredible individual, and somebody for sure that um, I what do I know? Um, but you know, for me, he would have been world champion in in eighty six. Um. And, you know, who knows thereafter? Uh, yep. but he was... No, no, it, it, I mean, I think it, it's absolutely fair to say, I mean, I, I, I want to, people to understand I'm, I'm sort of neutral towards a guy. I never, I never met him more than, I think maybe once or twice just to say hello in passing. Mm. Um, the, the um, you know, as an ex-co-driver from, from, from a few people uh, that, that, you know, a new Pirro, obviously, and, and, and Fred Gallagher, so... And you st- stories about him from them, and and you know you, you would pass him and you'd say hello and have a coffee maybe at the same bar or somewhere with the guy at some point, but nothing more than that. But um, I think the guy had come good. There was no doubt about the fact his greatness. There, there's no doubt about the fact the guy had hit the sweet spot. He'd had all that hard, hard, hard apprenticeship, and he'd come good, and and he was doing a great job. So yeah, fantastic. And I think as well, you know, perhaps we, we need to, to just remember um, Sergio Cresto. You know, two people died yes. in that uh, in that accident. And, you know, he was a, what was he, a 30-year-old co-driver, you know, absolutely ready to take on the world. He'd only started with Henry at the start of that season. Um, yep. and But it was well, very well known to, to Lancia. You know, he spent time with Andreas Zanussi uh, and, mm. and other drivers in the European Championship. Uh, and... Just you know, again, I I don't know the guy at all, uh, but a genuine tragedy, um, all round, really. Well, that's a definite, yeah. Well, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for giving us all that background information, David. And if you've been listening to this and have any other thoughts or questions, you can get in touch with at Dirtfish Rally, and um, we'll you know we'll answer your queries again on the next podcast. But that's been absolutely fascinating, David. Thanks, George, as well for your input. Colin and I have feel I don't know about you, Cole, but I feel fully educated now about that part of history. But you know, I I feel educated, but but not quite fully educated, and I feel as if I want to go and read that book, David, that you mentioned there. What, what is the book that we should be reading? The, the I, biography. I, I was just going to say before we go, we should give a plug to the book. It's called Toyvan, and it's about uh, Pauli, Henry, and Harry. Uh, it's a McLean book. Obviously, McLean are our photographic partner at Dirtfish.com, uh, and and written you know by the family, but also by Essa Eloinen, who is one of Finland's. Um, premier WRC motor racing journalist uh, so it is it's brilliant go to the McLean uh, rally store and you can find it there quality products from McLean every time yeah absolutely so uh, thanks for tuning into this edition of Spin the Rally Pod. Make sure you subscribe. And actually, while you're there, why not leave a review on your podcast suppliers 
or your podcast subscribers page and let us know what you think about Spin the Rally Pod. And of course, you can get in touch at Dirtfish Rally if you are looking for something else to have a little listen to. We've got a look back to some of the safari rallies of the past. Safari 96 is up there, but also... Coming up, Safari 98 with Derek Dornsey. Again, David Evans having a great chat. So why not subscribe and get the next edition of Spin the Rally Pod delivered straight into your device? And actually, while you're there, why not leave a review on your podcast subscribers page? Tell us what you think, uh, what we could include in future editions. What you like would be nice. And if you want to get in touch, it's at Dirtfish Rally. There's plenty more on the website at dirtfish.com. Lots to read about, but also more podcast content. We have Safari 98, Derek Dauncey talking us through that one. He was right at the centre of Richard Burns' first WRC win. And that will be followed up with a discussion on Rally GB 98. Derek Dauncey again. And if we're lucky, we might persuade George Donaldson to give us his opposing view of what happened in Rally GB 98. Colin, I think you're on duty for that. Well, yeah, I'm, not, I'm really I'm looking forward to that. I'm not prepared to indulge in that if you're not going to <laughs> talk about the 17, the 17 safari rallies I visited, I attended, I joined in on, and many, many wins on that. You it's can grossly unfair that you're you're excluding me from that. And you know, you're only talking about the, the shorter. Than that. <laughs>